We've been going from Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, talking about the path of life. That God doesn't want you to be stuck. And it's so important that we begin the path of life according to the way God wants us to walk it, not according to religious concepts and ideas. The more I preach, the more I realize that a lot of Christians have got a lot of religious ideas about what it means to be born again, what it means to qualify before God, how to approach God, what God thinks of them, and a lot of stuff that religion teaches you is a bunch of lies. And that's why when you hear the truth, it sounds like lies. Because you've had a diet of lies. And so when you eat junk food all your life, and then you eat one of my special protein shakes, or drink one of my protein shakes, you may feel sick for a few days, but if you keep eating the protein or drinking the protein shakes, eventually you won't want to go back to Big Macs <laughs> and KFC. Because right. it'll feel all greasy in your tummy. Right. The church has had a diet of religion for so long that when the truth is declared, people get upset. They write me nasty emails. Oh, that's okay, I've got big shoulders. I can cope with that. I know that I'm preaching the truth. That's why the religious people hated Jesus and they hated Paul because they both preached the gospel. The gospel is supposed to be good news. If it makes you more condemned and more bound and more guilty and, and more, 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 do more, more, work harder, then it's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is enough. You need to tell the devil that Jesus is enough. He measured up for me. That when God looks at me, he sees me through his son. So Romans 8, 3 says, for what the law was powerless to do, because the law just reveals that you've got a problem. Okay, anyone can tell you that. The law just shows that you need Jesus. The law reveals sin, but it doesn't heal from sin. So when people preach the law to Christians, they've got it all wrong. Because being a believer, you don't want to be sin conscious, you want to be Jesus conscious. I don't have a sin problem anymore. Because I'm in Christ. I did have a sin problem. That's what the law was there for. It said, you've got a problem. You need Jesus. And so I received Jesus. Now I don't have a problem. It was weakened by the flesh, the law. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came to be a sin offering. He offered himself for you so you don't have to offer yourself again. And so Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Three things. We're on the third thing this week. So let's just very quickly recap, because I know you're all hanging out for the fire tunnel. But this is really good today. This is amazing. If you get this in your heart, it will set you up for success in the path of life. I want you to go through that fire tunnel today with this, what I'm going to preach, in your mind. Okay, it's not just we're going for a, a stroll. We're going with a strategy today. I'm encountering God and what Andrew's taught today is going to become reality in my life. The encounter and the word go together. So from this passage, three things. When Jesus died on the cross, my sin was condemned in his body. That means the debt of sin has been paid in full. Did you hear that? The debt of sin, your debt has been paid in full. All your sins have been forgiven. From as far as the east is from the west, God's removed your sin. Your past, your present, and your future is all taken care of at the cross. You are forgiven. Uh, but I don't know if I'm forgiven. You are forgiven. 
Ah, blah, 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 blah. No, you're forgiven. Paul teaches that. You're forgiven. Forgiven. Sin, forgiveness is about a debt being paid in full. That's why Jesus said the last words on the cross, it is finished. The debt has been paid in full. You don't need to be forgiven anymore once you've been forgiven. Forgiveness is about a debt paid. Every time you ask God to forgive you after you're born again, you're saying to Jesus, you know that debt you paid? Would you please pay it again? That's what you're saying to him. You're saying, I thought I paid it. Yeah, but I, I don't feel today like it's paid. Well, it doesn't matter if you feel like it. I paid it. I know. My blood is evidence that it was paid in full. It is enough. The, see, we read Hebrews, and I don't have time to go into this, but we butcher that book because we don't understand that Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians that are going back to the law because they didn't believe that Jesus was enough. They crucify the Son of God all over again. They insult the Spirit of grace. And we think it's because we sin that he's writing to us. That, oh, we're crucifying. No, it's when you go back and say to Jesus, you know your death on the cross, it wasn't enough. I've got to feel bad about my sin. I've got to whip myself, beat myself up, ask God to forgive me every day. Start the, the, the day off in confessing my sin. You will just get a sin consciousness for the rest of the day. You need to wake up and confess, I am righteous and I am forgiven. Amen. I know a lot of people hate it when I preach this, but my friend, you can't find anywhere in the Bible where Paul the Apostle, who is, who is literally preaching the good news from Jesus. He's only preaching what Jesus revealed to him. Paul's not opposed to Jesus. Paul's just preaching the new covenant through Jesus' mind. Never once does he ask you to, to confess your sins to God. Not once. He asks you to repent. He says you need to change the way you think, but not to ask for forgiveness because you've been forgiven. He says, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Last week we talked about the second part of this scripture. He condemns sin in the flesh so the righteous requirement of the law would be fully met in us. So I said to you last week, when God looks at you, he sees the obedient son and he credits you with all that he's said about Jesus. So when God is looking at you today, he does not see your sin and your faults and your failures and your weaknesses and the things that you should have done that you didn't do. God sees the son. And most Christians don't understand this, that you are in Christ. When Jacob came... To Isaac, he came covered, covered in the skin of Esau. And so Isaac, whose eyes were dim, it's an imperfect, imperfect illustration, but it, it helps. He's covered in the skin of, of his brother. He smells like Esau. He feels like Esau. So Isaac, who can't see Jacob, but he can feel his skin, and it's all hairy. And he says, this must be Esau, so I'm going to bless you. So you know what that's telling us today is that when we come to God, he's not blind like Isaac, but the, the, the analogy is there that when we come to God and we come like, like Jacob all with our issues, God doesn't see us. He sees us like he sees Esau, the one who's blessed, the one who's highly favoured, and he blesses us. The analogy is right through scripture. We don't get what we deserve. We get what he deserves. He got what we deserve so we could get what he deserves. We are in Christ. Anytime you come to God on the basis of your own good works, you are doomed to fail because you never measure up. 
And all the religious Pharisees that try and tell you different, you just ask them, well, what basis do you, bring, do you have for your confidence before God if it's based on good works and your behavior? Because yeah. you can never measure up. That's what Jesus did right through the Gospels. He kept ramping up the righteous levels of the Pharisees to show them that they could never measure up in their own strength. You need Jesus. You need God to see you through his son. That's why every day I'm confident that God loves me because I'm in Christ. This week, we want to finish this passage. Who do not live according to the flesh. Oh, that's a lovely word in the Bible. But according to the spirit. Paul says we live according to the spirit standing that we have in God. So he's forgiven us. When he looks at us, he sees his righteous son. And now he's saying we live according to the spirit standing that we have as new covenant believers. We don't live according to the flesh, but we live according to the... Well done. So what does it mean to live according to the flesh? I'm glad you asked me. What does the flesh mean? It says, we do not live our lives in the ways of the flesh, guided by worldliness and our sinful nature, but we live our lives in the way of the Spirit. That's the amplified understanding of the word flesh. Sinful nature and worldliness. And Paul is saying, you don't live according to worldliness and sinful nature. The Living Translation calls the flesh our sinful nature. The New Century says our sinful selves. The God, God's Word says our corrupt nature. And the Living Bible says our old evil nature within us. <sighs> Paul says we don't live according to our old evil nature, our sinful selves, our sinful nature, our corrupt nature, but we live according to the Spirit. Hmm. I want to say to you today, the flesh is not your sinful nature. I know the writers say this, but in my humble opinion, they're totally wrong. He's not, he's, he says you don't live according to the flesh, you live according to the spirit. You approach God on the basis of who you are in the spirit, not who you are in the flesh. He's not saying you don't come to God based on you know, not being worldly or you know, your sinful nature, because if that was the case... I can never approach God if, if it's based on my getting rid of my worldly nature or my worldly thinking. It's just not true. And the other part that's not true is I don't even have a sinful nature to come before God in the first place. Romans chapter 7 is a chapter that a lot of people butcher. Oh, it's proof that we have a sinful nature. You don't come before God. And I'm teaching you this because you need to understand who you are when you come before God. He says, don't come in the flesh. So what does he mean when he says, don't come in the flesh? He's not talking about the fact that you're sinful. You have a sinful nature. And he's not saying to you, you need to get your life clean before you come to him. Romans 7 teaches us that you don't have a sinful nature. Here's the illustration. Paul begins this story by saying that we, we us and God, are like a woman and a husband. He uses this illustration of a woman that's lawfully married to her husband. And the husband in this story is a picture of our sinful nature. Okay, That's what Romans 7 is about. The woman is us, 
Before we're born again, and our husband is our sinful nature. And he says, by law, you are married to that husband. And as long as you're married to the husband, you're going to bear the fruit of that husband. Every time you come together, a baby will be born called sin. And you can't get rid of it. You're stuck with him. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. In other words, he says, you've got to kill your husband. He says, you're stuck with this evil husband called a sin nature. And as long as he's alive or you're alive, you're in trouble. Either you die or he dies. But until one of you dies, you're married. And you're always going to bear the fruit of a sinful nature. Does that make sense? On the cross, Jesus became that evil husband. He took on our sin nature. He says, you know what? I'll become the husband that you're married to. Because I don't want you to die and go to hell. So I'll become that evil husband and I will kill him by the cross. And so the Lord will never be able to say to you, you are married to an evil husband because he's dead. Amen. Amen. That's what Paul says. It's quite amazing. So we're free from that evil husband, that monster, that sinful nature that the church tells us that's lurking inside waiting to break out. You do not have a sinful nature. You are born again. Whoever is joined to the Lord is one spirit. You don't have this evil nature. You have an unrenewed mind, but you don't have an evil nature. Satan does not live in you. There is not some evil nature competing for your attention. You are one in spirit. That nature was put to death at the cross. Verse 3 says, So then if she marries another man, which is God, so if you want to have a relationship with God, while your husband is still alive, you're an adulteress. So in other words, your good works can't get you to God while you have a sinful nature. Here's the thing. An unbeliever can do all the good works in the world and it will never get them to God. And a believer can do all the bad works and it won't get them away from God. Because it's who you're married to that counts. What God is joined to let no man separate. So we read the scriptures about marriage in the Bible and they are speaking about a physical marriage but also a spiritual reality of your position in Christ. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and she's not an adulteress even though she marries another man. You are not an adulteress anymore because the old man, the old husband is dead and you're free to marry Christ. Amen? Amen. Verse 4, So my brothers... You also died to the law through the body of Christ, so you would belong to another, who, to him who raised him from the dead, in order that we would bear fruit to God. I am married to Christ, Paul saying. I carry his life within. Here's the thing. If I get close enough to him, I'm going to bear fruit. So the issue isn't whether you're married to Christ or not. The issue is whether you will sleep in the same bed as him. In other words, devotion, intimacy, and you'll bear fruit. You do not have a sinful nature. You may be barren. It's not because you're not married. It's because you're sleeping in a separate bed. Are you hearing this? Romans 6 clearly states Christ died to sin once for all. And we should likewise consider ourselves dead to sin. 
I've been crucified with Christ. That old nature is dead and buried. It's no longer I that live, that old nature, but Christ, the new nature, lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who's in me, who loved me and died for me, gave his life for me. I'm confident that I carry the nature of Jesus within me. If you're born again today, Jesus lives in you. And the devil doesn't. You have no sin nature. So Paul's not saying about the flesh that that you've got to deal with some worldly sin nature if you're going to live for God and approach God. He's not saying that at all. He says, don't approach God in the flesh. That's what he's saying. So the flesh is not my sinful nature and it's not my sinful actions. Romans uh, 8 verse 4, the Amplified says, We do not live our lives... According to the flesh. The ways of the flesh guided by worldliness and our sinful nature. But we live according to the Spirit. That's how the Amplified translators have translated the concept of flesh. Guided by your worldliness and your sinful nature. Now this is interesting. And you, so foolish and senseless, having begun your new life by faith, with the spirit, are you now being perfected and reaching spiritual maturity by the? Oh, what's the definition of flesh here? That is by your own works and efforts to keep the law. That's the definition of flesh that Paul is teaching in Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. So we then take that phrase of the flesh in Galatians 3 3 and insert it back into Romans 8. This is what we get. Who do not live our lives in the ways of the flesh. By your own works and efforts to keep the law, but according to the Spirit. Are you seeing this? This is what he's saying. We do not live our lives in the ways of the flesh by your own works, but we live our lives according to the Spirit. We approach God not on the basis of our own works, our own flesh, our own efforts, but we approach Him according to our position in the Spirit. God is Spirit. And those that worship him must worship from a place of the spirit, which is reality. Romans 8, 5. Look at this. For those who are according to the flesh. In other words, if you approach God from the position of confidence in your own flesh. This is what happens. The outcome is you will set your minds on the things of the flesh. Here it is. If you approach God on the basis of your up and down good works and behavior, then what's going to happen is there will be a corresponding action in your life of sinful actions. If you approach God on the basis of your righteous position, your spirit position, the overflow will be spiritual actions. Are you kidding? People that have a sin problem have a position problem. Your condition is always an outcome of your position. If you approach God on the basis that you're clean, perfect, righteous and holy and you get a revelation of that, the outworking is works of the Spirit. If you approach God on the basis of confidence in your own ability, your strength, you're independent, you want to do your own thing, the outworking will always be works of the flesh. And we get it back to front. 
Galatians 5.16 says, Those who walk in the Spirit will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, if you come to God on the position of a spirit position, of your acceptance in Christ, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And this is what I teach people. The more you get a revelation of God's unending love for you, that he sees you through his son, that you are righteous and pure, free from accusation, the more you get that, the less you will sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Why? So sin won't abound. The, see, people are cheap grace, cheap grace. I know what they're saying, but it's actually not cheap grace. It's misunderstood grace. Those that say, oh, I'm a grace person in sin and don't care, well, they don't know what grace is about. If you encounter Jesus in all his goodness and love and you see who you are in him, it will begin to break the power of sin. Maybe not straight away, but if you can keep saying in the midst of sin, I'm righteous, pure, free from accusation, God still sees me because I'm in Christ. That's my position. Even though I have failed today, he loves me and I'm his son. That security will free you from sin. Insecurity keeps you bound. That's what religion does. It hides sin, puts up a veil. I'm good. I've got it all together. But inside, you know, you've got nothing together. It looks like there's more sin in the grace churches because it doesn't get covered up. Romans 8.8 says, Those who are in the flesh can never please God. And you know what that means? It means if you sin, God's going to be cross. No. I was waiting for you to say no. No. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What pleases God? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in what Jesus has done for you. The greatest faith I need is when I've missed it that God still loves me. That's faith. That's what pleases God. Those who are in the flesh can't please God because there's no faith in their life because they don't believe in the work of Jesus that it was enough. Are you getting this? We have so butchered and twisted scripture because we don't believe in the foundation that he is a good God. So we keep, see, Jesus said, not be careful what you read and hear, but how? So we read a verse and we twist it because we have eyes, religious lenses that destroy the greatness and the goodness of God's heart towards us. Hmm. Jesus is enough. Say with me today, Jesus. Jesus. Say it with some passion. Jesus Jesus. is enough. enough. Let's say it all together. Jesus is enough. If you're listening on live stream and YouTube today, Jesus is enough for you. Jesus said, come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden by religion, by do, 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 and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. His yoke is lighter than the yoke of religion. He'll do it for you. He'll heal you, save you, cleanse you, transform you. Religion never does that. So we live from our spirit position. Paul says we don't live in the flesh. So we know what he means by that. Self-effort, striving, my base, boasting in my own righteousness. Or I can come before God today because I've been a good boy today. I can worship this week in church at Hope City Church. I can worship because I've really been good. And when you're bad, 
God doesn't get any worship. Because remember, he's, he's really impressed by your good works. He says God is spirit. He's looking for those who worship him in spirit, not in flesh and in truth. We worship from our spirit position. I said it last week, but it's worth saying again. Holy Spirit only rests on one person. His name is Jesus. You're not good enough. You don't cut it. None of the Old Testament prophets cut it. John the Baptist was the greatest of all of them. The Holy Spirit didn't rest on him. He came down from heaven and rested on Jesus. He's good enough. It's him alone. Sorry about that. And so we come from our spirit position that says, Holy Spirit, you are resting on Jesus and I'm in him, therefore you are in me. Jesus measured up. Holy Spirit doesn't go, doesn't come and go, come back, come back. No, he's, he's, he's said, Jesus said, I'll send you the Spirit, he'll remain, I won't leave you orphans. He'll come and he'll be in you and with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Why? That's, that's the whole purpose of Jesus coming and dying, is so the Holy Spirit would have someone to rest on and not go every time he sinned. So he doesn't go when I sin because he's not staying on me, he's staying on Jesus in me. I need him to stay when I sin. To get me back to where I should be. It's really illogical what we teach, isn't it? Or some people teach. He's resting on Jesus. The flesh can never support or never be the means of confidence before Christ. John 14, verse 20, everyone should know this scripture. Jesus said, I am in the Father. Not you. You'll never be in the Father. I'm in the Father, Jesus said. I'm in the Father. Only one person's in the Father. His name is Jesus. But the good news is this, because that would be really depressing. But Jesus said, but, hang on, but you're in me and I'm in you. And that's why I'm confident that God loves me because I'm in Jesus and he's in me. And that's why the only approach before God can be Jesus. Because there's not one person that can bypass Jesus and use their works or their behavior as a means to say, I'm, I'm okay with the Father. I look at you and think, you fool. You'll never measure up. You'll never be able to say, Jesus plus me to the Father. There's only one way to the Father, and his name is Jesus. Only one person can measure up day after day. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His nature is perfect every day. That's why I have confidence before God. Andrew McGrath, up one day, down the next, big twisted here, angry here, cut someone pers- a person off in his car, you know, kick the cat. I won't say any more things. Did he really do that? I'm just giving an example. Okay, here's the thing. Only Jesus is constant. The Holy Spirit rests on him. That's my confidence is in him. If we could get this revelation, it will free your prayer life up. You'll wake up happier in the morning. Holy Spirit is constantly upon you because he's on Jesus. Am I good or am I bad? David's in hell. If I make my bed in heaven, it doesn't make any difference. You're with me. That's why David, listen, I believe that's why David could build his tabernacle where God could abide with him 24-7 out of season in the Old Covenant because David had a revelation that God is with him 
in every place, not based on his behaviour. Maybe it was as much about David's revelation as it was that God built the tabernacle. I don't know. Hmm. Philippians 3.3 3 says, We are the circumcision. What's been circumcised? Our old nature has been cut off, buried. And we worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he's saying. We've cut off the old nature, right? It says here, we worship God in the spirit position, joined in one flesh. We rejoice in Jesus because I'm found in him and we have no confidence in the flesh. Do you get that now? He said, I never come before God on the basis of my ability. I rejoice that I'm in Christ Jesus, that my old nature is cut off and the fact that I am now Worshipping God in the spirit. That doesn't mean some like, kumbaya. It's not like spiritual. Worshipping in the spirit. Put some music on. Oh, I'm in the spirit. Oh. No! In your spirit position. God is spirit. And the only way to connect with God is to be in Christ. Because God is in Christ. Christ is in God. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. And if I want to be part of that holy trinity with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I've got to worship in spirit. I've got to come based on the fact I'm in Christ. It's a spiritual position. Does that make sense? Good. Veil Moses as we close. You know the story about Moses, holy Moses. Received the law in God's presence. It's a great story. Up in the mountain. Oh, it's great. Angels, you know, gold dust. Miracles, angels, Adam Thompson prophesying. It was amazing. And there's all this glory. And he receives the Ten Commandments from God. Everything looks different in God's presence. His presence empowers us to say, yes, it transforms us. It turns the Bible from a manual to a mirror. Did you hear that? From a have to, to a, is that who I am? Yeah. See, the commandments in the presence of God weren't a manual about you have to do, but it was a disclosure of who I am. Yeah. And that's what, how we read the Bible. It's not a manual, it's a mirror. Good word, Andrew. So when it says, just sidetracking, when it says you shall give, it's not a manual saying I'm going to give. It's a mirror to say this is who I am. I'm a giver. Yeah. And when I look in the mirror... And my actions don't correspond to the mirror. I know that there's something about myself that isn't quite true. I'm believing a lie. Maybe I'm believing a lie that says God's not in my future. He's not going to take care of me. So I go back to the mirror and I look again. Lord, show me how you, who you are. Who, who am I? It's not a manual. It's a mirror. So he's in the presence. Everything looks wonderful. But you know what happened? He leaves God's presence carrying the law. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a bad idea leaving God's presence and trying to do something that God's asked you to do. In his presence, he makes the impossible possible. When you leave his presence and become self-reliant, works-based, it's impossible to do what God has asked you to do. So Moses takes the law and says, Right, folks, God's given me a bunch of rules. 
we have to commit to this and I'm going to be the mediator. But it says, it, the Bible says that, that God is one. There's no mediator when it comes to God. He's one. God wants to have the equation where he's on both sides. I'll do this and I'll do that. You stay out of the way because you'll mess it up. But these people said, okay, these are the laws. We'll do it. We'll do it in our own strength. So he took what God had asked him to do, which only could be done in the consciousness of his presence and delight and affirmation. And they did it, tried to do it outside of that. It's called a religious fever. And it'll kill you. And you know the story that when God, Moses left God, took the commandments down, then God's presence left Moses. And he couldn't sustain this appearance, so he covered it up. Hmm. There's a lot of cover-ups in the, in the body of Christ, a lot of veils. It's called religion. We move off into our world after a Sunday service, not realizing that the glory is fading because we try to do life we try to take everything we've learnt and heard and try to do it in our own strength. Now, there's, there's a degree that our will comes into it, but we delight to do His will. It's when His delight comes inside us that our will becomes energised. It's just a lot of hard work. When you get out of the consciousness of God's delight and favour that He wants to work in and through you, that His presence is the empowerment to do His His presence will turn the Bible into a mirror and not a manual. It won't be hard and, and, and we won't be covering up because then we don't want people to see the real us because it's not working in our life. And that's the difference between a Christian lifestyle and a Christian life. A lot of people adopt a Christian lifestyle because it's nice. Nice friends, nice house. I've got people that don't swear and smoke and they're nice to have friends. It's a Christian lifestyle, but it's not a Christian life. So we cover it up. Because we can never be transformed unless we're in the presence of God 24-7. The awareness of God's absolute delight over me and his willingness to work in and through me, even in my darkest moments. If you don't have that, you will put a veil up and you'll pretend everything's okay. We'll bury our sin, bury our addictions, ashamed of it all. And all it does is push us further and further away from God. Take off the veil Come into the presence of God and say, here I am, warts and all. I've got some problems. God says, I know. I've been waiting for you to come back. Moses should have walked back into that place and say, God, this is a bad idea that I've got. I can't do it. We cannot do life without your absolute 100% acceptance and presence. The whole mob of us are coming up to the mountain. Because that's the only place where we can fulfill your will in our lives. We need to know we're accepted and loved and not having to work and strive. Veiled Moses is religion in all its glory. A lot of appearance, but not much reality. And we don't want to grow believers like this in our church. We want to have people that are totally have this revelation I'm accepted and loved and forgiven. I'm free to come into his presence and allow him to transform me. You know, it's a major shift in the way that we relate to God. We're going to finish with this passage very quickly. 2 Corinthians 
This is the story of Moses. And, it, and Paul goes on to say, you know what? The church or the religious people in that time, they were like this. It says their minds were hardened because they read the scripture and there's a veil because it's only removed in Christ. So you can read the Bible and the, the whole concept of what it means to believe, it's just totally veiled. Because you think it's all about work harder, strive more. But it says in Christ. You have to come into Christ and say, Lord, I thank you, you live in me every single day. That you see me righteous. John shared about this this morning, with free from accusation, holy. That, that you're, you, you take great pleasure over me. And I don't even understand how you could do that, but I just know that when you see Jesus in me, we're one. Jesus and I are one. See, it's like this. If you want to be friends of a married couple, here's the deal. You can't hate the wife and love the husband. Have you noticed that? It doesn't work. You imagine four people going out for dinner. And so I go out with my wife with another couple, and we can't stand the woman. It's like, it's like, but we really like the guy. That, that relationship is doomed. Because you've got to be in Christ. He sees us in Christ. We are joined together. And because he loves the Son, he loves us as well. He doesn't see us separate. His love is equal to the bride as it is to the Son. It's an enormous thing to realize that because we, are, we have the nature of the Son, he loves us the same. It's not some bride with a, in a bung leg and you know, it, her, what do you call the thing she puts on her head? Veil, Veil but the nice thing, you know, tiara. tiara. You know, imagine it was all broken and stones are falling off and she's, you know, she smells, she hasn't had a wash for a week and she comes in. It's not like that. It's not some, it's not some mismatch where the, the bride's all in, the, the groom's in a lovely jacket and the bride's all ugly. No, they are one in the same, both in perfection. And this is really important. So the father can love the bride as he loves the son. It's so important. He loves me the same as he loves the son. Equal in stature. So we measure up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And most of that comes through us seeing ourselves the way God sees us. Equal in stature to the Son. Their minds were hardened because they read the scripture. There's a veil because it's removed in Christ. Everything about the Bible is to elevate me to a position as a loved son. Verse 14 15, but a person, when a person turns to Holy Spirit, because he's the one who reveals this to us, the veil is removed. As we go through the fire tunnel, I'm praying the Holy Spirit rips the veil off. So we walk through and we get this revelation. I am, I am loved. I'm accepted. I'm clean. I'm pure. Free from accusation. I have to strive. I have to measure up. All the promises that God has, they are mine because I'm in Christ Jesus. Made me the seed of Abraham. I don't need to do anything but believe. What should we do that we would do the works of God? Believe. Verse 18, so we with unveiled faces, which is an in Christ alone mindset, we behold as in the mirror the glory of God and we're transformed into the same image as Jesus from glory to glory. Wow. That's what it means to approach God in the Spirit. 
Our faces are unveiled. We come with a consciousness that we're in Christ. We say, Father, show me who I am and show me who you are. There's no consciousness of sin. Righteousness is the ability to come before God with no inferiority, no sense of fear or condemnation, no regret, no shame, no disappointment, none of that. And say, here I am, Father. Tell me who I am again today and tell me who you are. And if we have those encounters in his presence, we're transformed from glory to glory. So we need the word, the mirror that teaches us who we are. Then we need the glory encounter that empowers us to live as the word says we are. That's the path of life. To live loved by God. He sends his son, Dean taught, week one. Week two, he paid for the debt of sin. We're totally forgiven. Week three, we have this consciousness that we're clean and righteous. Week four, now we approach God in this position of the spirit and not the flesh. Every day, I'm in Christ and I approach you from my spirit position and not my flesh. That will get you down the path of life. You will grow and you'll prosper and possess all the promises of God because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Amen?